Ay, qué hambre. ¿Pasamos por McDonald's? Va. ¿Qué ordenas normalmente? Mm, una quarter pounder. Ah, eres una burger person. <risa> y unos McNuggets. Ah, eres de las mías. <risa> El, la mejor manera de conocer a alguien, Deal, de McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos, como un McNuggets de 10 piezas y una Quarter Pounder por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar producto individual a precio regular. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Garitti, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tovo Wang. My name is Tova Wang, and welcome to Say It in Contagious. We have been doing a series of webinars since the pandemic began that looks at the intersection between what's going on in politics, social justice, and in our world, and baseball. We are uh, a mix of political scientists, baseball historians, baseball writers, and we are all fans, and we are all social activists. And we discuss the game, its history, and how it is a lens into the issues of race, economics, and American culture. So we've been doing the webinars, and we have been convinced that we should do a podcast. And so we are starting that today. Um, in my day job, I am a democracy fellow at the Ash Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. Also a huge Yankees fan, huge baseball fan, have been since I was very small. And I'm going to turn it over now to Lincoln Mitchell to introduce himself and say a few words about the podcast. Thank you, Tova. I'm going to just flesh out a little bit of what, what Tova was saying. My name is Lincoln Mitchell. So steal a line from Leonard Cohen. I am a lazy bastard living in blue jeans and a San Francisco Giants cap. But what the six of us have in common is that we all love baseball. That's obvious. We're, this is a podcast where we're going to talk a lot about baseball, baseball history, some of the problems we see associated with baseball. But this is not a podcast where we're going to just say how terrible baseball is and we should all go watch football. I have watched exactly one football game in the last 20 years, and that didn't go so well. We all love baseball. But more than that, it's one of the lenses through which we, it's not the only lens, but it's one of the lenses, lenses through which we understand or think about politics, society, history, and social justice. So that nexus is very important to us. It's a way that we think about the world and maybe can help others think about or learn about the world. As Tova pointed out, we've done six webinars. I hope some of you listening participated in some of those. We enjoyed it. We got very good feedback. Uh, but we wanted to make it easier for people. Webinars are kind of appointment viewing. We ended up doing a lot of them, you know, on Sundays at six o'clock on the East Coast or seven o'clock on the East Coast. And people on the West Coast were in the middle of things, particularly if they're on a weekday. So we're doing it this way. You can listen to it while you're walking your dog, jogging, reading the box scores, whatever it is you do. Um, there's no box scores yet. And we also, by doing that, we learned that we had a lot of fun and a good mix of perspectives and a good rapport with each other. So that's how we get to here. Now, as Toba said, this is It's kind of both a baseball and a politics podcast, but it's neither a baseball podcast nor a politics podcast. This is probably not the place to go if you want to hear who, who we think are the front runners for the Republican nomination in 2024. I have some thoughts about that, but this is not the place for that, nor is it you know, for a long debate about, I don't know, whether uh, Andrew Jones should be in the Hall of Fame or something like that. We're looking at the intersection. But I want to just raise a couple of other points here. In my view, and I think this reflects a lot of our thinking, It's never really been possible to understand baseball without discussing issue, issues 
of social justice, race, and economics, and things like that. So we wanted to create a forum to do that explicitly, rather than to you know make it a five minutes at the end of the discussion or a small column on the end of the web. So we wanted to kind of make that central to really understanding the history of the game and the game itself. Some of us write and talk about baseball all the time. Some of us, I write baseball books from time to time, but my day job is not focusing entirely on baseball all the time. So this is an opportunity for us to do that. There are lots of issues to discuss here. Some of the things we hope to get to in the coming weeks are the status of the minor leagues, what's happening with the minor leagues, this question of using ballparks as civic spaces. We've seen this in the news, both around issues of voting, but also now around the vaccines, which is kind of interesting. The question of what social justice will look like heading into the new season, whether, whether there will be momentum from 2020 or whether that will fade away. Obviously, the events of this week are very important there as well. So I hope that the rest of my colleagues here can introduce themselves and then we can kind of get into the discussion more. Name's Adrian Burgos. I'm a professor of history at the University of Illinois. And I write on Latinos in baseball, and I write for both a scholarly audience and a public audience. So I write books, and I also write short-form articles that you can see on baseball prospectus and elsewhere. So baseball for me is a space of community, identity, and a place where we also get entertained. And so we discuss all those things, the politics and the race and the history of it. Hi, I'm Craig Calcaterra. I am the proprietor of the Cup of Coffee newsletter that is nominally about baseball, but is also about a lot of other stuff, whatever I feel like. And the reason I'm kind of doing that is because for the previous 11 years, I was a baseball-only writer at NBC who got yelled at for writing about politics and a lot of other stuff, too. So uh, this is right up my alley, guys. Hi, I'm Frank Ritty, historian, a professor of history and African-American studies at Columbia University author of The Sports Revolution, a believer in the transformative power of sport, even though I am a critic uh, as well. Uh, and I'm interested in, as uh, many of us are, in the question of how sport uh, is related to the larger society, especially to social justice. My name is Stephen Goldman. I am a longtime editor and contributor to Baseball Prospectus. And I am the host of The Infinite Inning, which dwells in a dark metaphorical space where you never can get the third out because whether in baseball or in the rest of life, things are chronically dysfunctional. And each week I tell a lot of stories underscoring that part, whether about baseball or other things, and then have a conversation with guests, including some of the people on this year panel. Thanks, guys. And so as you can hear, I think we have a really interesting mix of people involved in this, and uh, we're glad to have you with us. So the topic for today, and, and we will be talking about it, is the recent uh, events around the Negro Leagues and Major League Baseball deciding that the Negro Leagues played Major League Baseball. And we were going to talk about that, and we will talk about that, and how that is reflective of some larger social issues in our country and, and history. But we would be remiss as both people who work in these areas and as people not to talk about what has been happening in our country over the last week and in the coming days, uh, specifically, of course, the uh, coup attempt at the U.S. Capitol, uh, Lincoln. In my view, and as we are recording this, the impeachment Debate is a strong word for what they're doing. I guess kibitz might be a better word, but the impeachment kibitz or whatever you want to call it is occurring in the House of Representatives. And while many of us were really horrified by what we saw on Wednesday, and notably in the time since Wednesday, the news has gotten worse. We've learned that it was more violent 
and potentially really could have been a much bigger loss of lives and a much greater disruption. For me, it is imperative to put this in the greater context of democratic rollback, both with regards to our institutions that are just too old and don't work anymore. And I know that's the kind of thing that, that, that you know, you're not supposed to say aloud in the United States, but it, it remains true that if space aliens landed in, I don't know, Kansas and wiped out half the population of the United States, the pundits who survived would get on television and say this proves that our institutions work. But they don't work and they haven't worked for a while. But also the the election of an, uh, a president who kind of married a, a, a white supremacist ideology to an authoritarian impulse and a political party that decided that the most important thing they could do was not hurt that person's feelings. And that morphed into a cult. And that's the, that led to a disinformation campaign, which really accelerated. It began in the spring, but accelerated after after Joe Biden won the election. And that context is important for understanding what happened Wednesday, not just because I'm relentlessly cheerful about everything, but because that leads us, should think about, on the one hand, how difficult is going to be to get back to or get to somewhere more functional and the potential for much greater violence going forward and how all of our non-political structures and institutions, including for the purposes of this base of this discussion, baseball, will have to respond to that. So those are some of my initial thoughts. Thanks, Lincoln. And especially for the last point, as someone who literally lives equidistant between the Nationals baseball stadium and the U.S. Capitol. One of the things to me that was really interesting was hearing the, the reactions and how it was framed. In particular, people describing the events as what you would see in a banana republic. And for me, looking at how Central American, Latin American, Caribbean countries have had the transfer of power or the non-transfer of power undermined in their countries. I found it so fascinating, this perspective of sitting in the midst of an attempted coup and saying, oh, this is not who we are, but going to like frame this, oh, this is what people in Latin America do. Banana republics do this. When oftentimes it was precisely because of actions that the United States government had done that these non-peaceful transfer of power would take place in Guatemala, in Honduras, in Nicaragua, in the Dominican Republic. And so this is precisely what American history has been about. It's been about how those in power have sought to maintain a certain order and others who are upset with it sought to disrupt it. This has happened time and again in Latin America via the forces of the United States. And to have that framed as this is what, to put it bluntly, Latinos do or Filipinos do and not us Americans do was, oh my goodness, I just could not take it anymore. This is white supremacy in action. This is the end game of white supremacy, power. Yeah, you know, Adrian, you make me wonder, this is our other thing, of course, is what Latino baseball players are thinking right now who come from some of those countries. Man. Would love for one of them or some of them to be interviewed to hear how they're looking at this right now from, for instance, Venezuela um, and some other countries that are, you know, also pretty big baseball players. Yeah, great question, Tova, because that was one of the persons I thought about was Trump's buddy, baseball pitching buddy, Mariano Rivera. Oh, and yeah. you know, thinking about the transfer of power over the years in Panama and, you know, U.S. interventions in Panama. 
and Trump tries to do it right here in the United States. Adrian, you remind me both of the Platt Amendment, which some of you probably uh, listening have you know haven't thought about since you had an AP history test or something, but the uh, idea that the United States got to dictate basically every form of what an independent Cuban government would look like, and that remained the case until Castro came around. And then also, I may not be remembering the the country correctly, but I, I think I am that before Franklin Roosevelt was president, when he was assistant secretary of the Navy, he got in trouble for testifying before Congress that he had personally written the constitution of the Dominican Republic and a cracking good constitution it was too, he said. And and I don't think they were mad at him for the, the egotism of that so much as you were not supposed to just openly boast of the fact that the United States was pulling strings on some of these countries. There's no question that the Banana Republic references are, are, are useful to think about insofar as we're reminding ourselves of the ways in which the United States facilitated authoritarian uh, regimes and coups, or one of the most infam- infamous ones, of course, being the 1954 uh, CIA-coordinated uh, coup overthrow of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala, right? So uh, and, and if you're looking at U.S. relations with other parts of the world, Latin America, um, the, they they have uh, long histories of facilitating in uh, coups and authoritarian regimes, uh, certainly throughout most of the 20th century. And so, you know, as I think about, you know, the, you know how this is playing out now, you know, as a historian, again, and others have said this, I mean, the, to me, as much as we are, you know, as I was appalled and shocked and infuriated as, as, as most of us, at least the, the people who are people who voted for Joe Biden, you know, at the same time, it's just the culmination of 60 plus years of reactionary white politics, certainly as they've been manifested in the shifts, uh, party politics between the Democrats and the Republicans. And so even if we focus on the particularities of the moment, QAnon, right, uh, Trumpism, uh, it really, in a lot of ways, is a culmination of, of the Republican Party's shepherding, facilitating, fostering, you know, white grievance politics allied with certain uh, elements of, of corporate America. And so to see corporations sort of respond now in the ways in which they were rhetorically responding to the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer, it's going to be very interesting to see. One of the things I'm thinking about is to what extent will they start disidentifying with the Republican Party as it's being dominated by the Trumpist forces? Uh, will that is that just rhetorical, as we're seeing in the last couple of days? Or is that going to be, you know, something more significant? Uh, and I would, again, throw in Major League Baseball and professional sports franchises as well, because as much as they've tried to occupy this middle space of being apolitical while donating to Republican causes, I think that position is going to be hard to um, to to maintain as 2021 uh, continues to unfold. To your point, Frank, uh, as we're recording, uh, this is Wednesday, January 13th, just before we began recording, some news came out. Not all of you might have seen it yet. Major League Baseball just announced that they're going to suspend political donations for the time being for an indefinite period of time. Major League Baseball has a political action committee. It's spent a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, almost $700,000 since 2016 donating to political candidates, about uh, 55% of them Republican, the rest Democrats. The the big payoff they've gotten for that was the the minor league bill that they got a few years ago, uh, a couple of years ago, that uh, uh, allows Major League Baseball to continue to pay minor leaguers sub-minimum wage rates. So they have definitely gotten something for their donations. But now they, along with uh, all these other corporations we've seen in the last few days, are saying they're taking a step back. This leads to, I mean, one of my big reactions to all this is just the nature of corporate power in America that we've seen since last week. The only thing that has actually moved the needle a little bit as far as the public behavior of politicians, Republicans, is that a huge number of corporations have now 
said they're going to and threaten to withhold political donations or, you know, take people off of their platforms, whether it's Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, big companies like Walmart, uh, Marriott, you name it. There's a huge number of them that have come out. All the marching in the streets and all the protests and anything you could do, don't move the needle the way that a press release from a heavy donor corporation does in this country. And it tells you a lot about who has power in this country. And that's the, the corporate wealthy classes. The question I have is, how long will that last? Is this just eyewash, to use a baseball term, while the news cycles trend badly to say that, uh, you know, disassociate yourself from Republican politicians you've given thousands of thousands of dollars to, and then in a few months when the heat blows over, you start that spigot up again? Or is this a change? Is this a big change that we're going to see uh, in the way that uh, corporations interact with with politics? I think it's the former. And especially in the case of Major League Baseball, I think it's the former. There's nothing that they don't do that isn't for eyewash purposes when they're talking about the political and public level. So uh, this is uh, they're the first sports league to to, to step out of the, the political donation game. But I imagine they'll be the first one to step right back in. That's actually pretty impressive. I, I, you know, you just made me think about how we know that many of the owners in Major League Baseball were Trump supporters and gave donations. And I don't know how many of the players, given the backgrounds that some of them have, were also Trump supporters. And, you know, what kind of new tensions that creates. I, you know, we talked about social justice and the social justice actions of many of the players last year around George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And doesn't this put this even in sharper relief for people? And how does how does that play out? And how does that affect how they um, operate around politics when spring training, which I guess is still on time, begins? Sorry, Lincoln, you were about to say something, I think. Yeah, I was struck by a couple of things that Frank and, and Craig said, because what I'm trying to sort through is that if, if it is a view of American corporations or the American people that white supremacy is bad, right? And Craig, the reason the corporations move on this is not because they have principles, but because they have pocketbooks. So the demonstrations, they're looking at public opinion and they're seeing because of the disconnect between the culture and the election outcomes, that the Trump sentiment is much more negative than, it, than, than our political institutions reflect because of things like the U.S. Senate and the Electoral College. The problem is if you put that Black Lives Matter on your Instagram feed, if you're a corporation, or if you say you won't support Republican politicians who supported the coup attempt, the logical outcome of that is to wrestle with the reality that the Republican Party is at its core deeply. Being white supremacist is not a bug of the Republican Party. It is the feature. It is the unifying force. So I, we, we talked about this kind of racist language about this looks like a banana republic. I've not done a lot of work in that part of the world, not least because, you know, my Russian is better than my Spanish, which is non-existent. But I have done a lot of work in the former Soviet Union. And I've been involved with folks who have stormed the Capitol because the election was, in fact, in fact, stolen. The difference here is that the election wasn't stolen and it was the autocratic leader who was spreading this disinformation campaign, as opposed to, say, uh, for example, the Rose Revolution. But leaving the history lesson aside, the issue here is that we are moving with luck into a post-authoritarian period, right? We have had this dalliance with democratic rollback, this flirtation with authoritarianism. We've pushed back and we are trying to build or rebuild, depending on how you look at it, democracy. But that is extremely hard to do when 40% of the country still supports the authoritarian regime. And we should be very clear about that. No matter all of the nice things that corporations are saying now, that, that 
that the media is saying now at the end of the day, if the Republican primary were tomorrow for president, Donald Trump would win in a landslide, the primary. And if he had to run against against Joe Biden tomorrow, Biden would win probably 56-44. I, I have no evidence for this. This is just somebody who's been around politics for many decades giving you my best estimate. But it wouldn't get much below 44. And with that support for this this cult, for this cult of, of this bigoted white supremacist authoritarian leader, it's very hard to move forward in politics, in society, and in baseball, which by its nature seeks to bring people together, not in some feel-good sense, but literally bring them together in the ballpark. Switching to GEICO is a good idea, especially when you consider everything. First off, GEICO makes it easy to switch. They have licensed agents available 24-7 online or over the phone. But if it's so easy, you might start thinking everything is easy, even big wave surfing. And it's not. It's actually quite difficult. Well, if you switch to GEICO, you could save hundreds on car insurance. And you could keep saving by bundling your motorcycle, boat, and RV, plus your home or renter's insurance. But saving money might lead you to make some questionable purchases, like a 20-foot feather boa. And do you know how hard it is to clean a 20-foot feather boa? Well, they do have an industry-leading mobile app you can use to pay your bill, file and manage a claim, or add a new driver. But when life gets a little easier, it makes you too confident. And you start calling everyone ace. And you're better than that. Well, GEICO has a 97% customer satisfaction rating and has been saving people money for 85 years. It's hard to beat that. But you're right. Switch to GEICO. It's obviously a good idea. Se siente bien saber que cuando le pones sirope a tu Big Breakfast with hotcakes de McDonald's, tú controlas dónde cae. Primero se acerca tu biscuit y rodea la salchicha, luego llega a tus hash browns y finalmente a tus huevos revueltos, dándoles ese sabor dulce del maple. Ordena por anticipado en el app de McDonald's y que fluya el sirope. Para pa pa pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes se requiere la descarga y registro. We've all been talking about white supremacy, and I think the role of white supremacy in what's happened over the last week can't be underscored enough. And it also sort of brings us a little bit anyway to the topic of today, which is the Negro Leagues, which of course existed because of white supremacy for many years. And um, so I wanted to start that conversation, which does have some relationship in some ways to that. So I, I'm sure many of you have heard this already, but back in December, I think it was, uh, Major League Baseball declared it will now recognize uh, seven of the Negro Leagues, the players and their stats as being quote unquote Major League. Our favorite guy, uh, Rob Manfred said, Major League Baseball is correcting a longtime oversight in the game's history by officially elevating the Negro Leagues to Major League status. So the most obvious and immediate implication of this is changing the records, right? There are about 3,400 players from seven different Negro Leagues that operated between 1920 and 1948 that will be included and will now be recognized as major leaguers. And the records are going to be updated accordingly. But, you know, while that's of obvious significance, it does raise larger questions about baseball and race um, historically and currently. And so I want to bring the conversation to that with what is happening right now, obviously, strongly in the background. Craig, I'm going to start off with you. What was your first reaction when you heard about the announcement? Were you happy, feeling cynical, which you can now and again? <laughs> A little angry mix? Uh, yes. 
I'm always a little cynical. No, I'm always a lot cynical of what Major League Baseball does, and there's a lot of reason to be cynical about what it does with respect to race, too. But I will be honest and say my first impulse was actually, hey, this is good. I mean, it is good news. It was good news in December when this happened. Uh, and it was important news, right? I, I, I spent a lot of time criticizing Major League Baseball, but you know, it's nice to be able to be proud, at least superficially, of the institution that you know I've spent a lot of time talking about and and being disappointed in. But I think where the cynicism comes in for me is seeing how Major League Baseball has handled its, for lack of a better word, celebration of race and its racial history in recent years. Every April 15th, when uh, it's Jackie Robinson Day, Major League Baseball has very frequently centered itself on look how good we were about uh, letting Jackie Robinson in and not talking very much and not reckoning very much with the decades and decades, century almost, of professional baseball history in which uh, they kept black players and people of color out. My concern about this, and and I haven't seen a lot of it, I'll be fair, it's, I think so many people like me pounced on it immediately as watch out for this, of Major League Baseball patting itself on the back and saying, look at us, look what we did to the Negro Leagues, we're, we're so good. So I am a little cynical about that. I really wish that there was a greater reckoning about Major League Baseball history, but just like America uh, itself, it, it likes to pretend that uh, you know, when you pass the Civil Rights Act that racism ended, Major League Baseball likes to pretend when Jackie Robinson started playing, it's racism ended. And I, I think this is, at least in some small ways, part of that as well. Yeah, thanks for that. I'm going to ask Steve, who's the other guy who's never cynical in this group. Well, actually, everyone should know that everyone in this group is pretty cynical. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I oddly try to keep it light. You're the least cynical of all of us, Toby. <laughs> and that is truly bizarre. And Lincoln, who has known me for about 25 years, can tell you there's something very off about that. Yeah, we're in trouble. But anyway, it's all in good fun a lot of the time, at least. So I, yeah, I want to ask Steve about this. And also, is this some kind of first step that baseball is going to realize its uh, role in all of this? Or is this just, you know, what they're doing now and, and sort of what your first reactions were? Well, I'm not sure who it's addressed to or what it will change because the history is the history. And the Jackie Robinization of everything and, you know, Jackie's as much a, a hero to me as he is to, to anybody and, and deservedly so. And and Ricky in a different way. Ricky combined self-interest with morality in a way that allowed him to, to do what he did. I don't think you could have had one without the other. But when baseball segregated, baseball was actually following the national zeitgeist, right? Reconstruction ended with the, quote, Compromise of 1876, which has been bandied about in Congress uh, lately when the Republicans sold out the former slaves, now African-American citizens, by pulling troops out of the South, allowing for the rise of Jim Crow and basically a, a hundred years of second-class citizenry and suppression by force and their elimination from the population of voters, which was a, a self-reinforcing cycle over time, which they're they're trying to to recreate now. And of course, the Supreme Court blessed that with Plessy versus Ferguson. So while baseball and baseball historians like to say, oh, Cap Anson, oh, he's just, you know, him versus Moses Fleetwood Walker, whatever. It was part of a national trend, which I think it would be more honest and more of a, a public service to acknowledge and say, look, we're not disclaiming responsibility for that, but we also have to understand where the country was at that time. And it's not a time to be proud of. And we jumped on that bandwagon. And I think now 
is it just to, to bring this back to, to what we were talking about at the outset now when when baseball is among the last of many corporations to say that they're suspending donations to people who voted in favor of insurrection, sedition, overthrowing the election, what have you. It's kind of the same thing. They're seeing which way the the wind blows. But I, I think that it's interesting. And, and as we're talking, I am watching the vote in the House for or against uh, impeachment on a, on a little ticker in the same way that baseball kind of fulfilled the conditions of the culture back then. We're watching the fulfillment of the culture in a different way now. I find it fascinating thinking about the narrative of baseball's integration, kind of circling back to what Craig had raised and how Major League Baseball very much just focused on Jackie when there was a whole generation of integration pioneers. Integration in baseball was 16 chapter story. Every organization had to integrate. And just because Jackie did it in Brooklyn did not really make it easier in Boston or New York City with the Yankees. So it's a fascinating thing for MLB to say, yes, the Negro Leagues were major leagues. And I'm glad for that. As someone who has spent a lot of time studying the history of the Negro Leagues, talking to many of these guys are now dead, uh, these uh, Negro League players, it's rightful recognition. But what has to be dealt with is that history of what was the role of Major League Baseball. Branch Rickey, on the day he signed Jackie Robinson, called the Negro Leagues a racket. He besmirched the African-American men, the Afro-Latino men, the African-American woman, Effa Manley, who said, you can't steal my players because Branch Rickey wanted to actually sign three black ball players with the Dodgers. This is what John Thorne and Jules Tygill had found, that the initial plan was to actually sign three black guys and bring them in. Except Effa Man was like, you're not stealing my player. You pay me. And from the foundation of the story there is that we saw MLB decide that African-American men and women in charge of the Negro Leagues were not going to be equal stakeholders in the story of integration and how it happened. So here we are in 2020, now 2021, recognizing them as major leagues. What does that do for the families? of those players who basically were denied the benefits of being major leaguers all those years. And again, I'm, my immediate reaction is, so what are you going to do about Minnie Minoso now? Yes, The man should have been in the Hall of Fame from the very start. He was an integration pioneer. He was the first black player on the Chicago White Sox, first black major leaguer in Chicago. He was a stellar player. How are they going to deal with him now? Or with Felipe? Well, Felipe comes along a little later, and a little later, but same similar profile. Yeah, yeah. But um, can, can I inject some more cynicism here? <laughs> sure. Um, and this sort of builds on Adrian's point, and it it's not just that Major League Baseball didn't celebrate the other fifteen or or anything. It, it it sort of overlooked the other hundreds scores, you know, of of players, scouts, coaches in in the Negro leagues. You know, you cannot tell me that there were only sixteen over the course of, you know, how many years, uh, black players who were major league baseball quality, or that there was only one in nineteen forty seven. That probably went very deep. And if you want to go deeper than that, there are a ton of guys that were in the Negro leagues that were far better players than guys filling up AAA and AA rosters in white baseball who didn't get a chance. So Major League Baseball coming and poaching 
the top talent in the Negro Leagues helped crater the Negro Leagues, obviously. There's a book on that. Andrea Williams, and the book is Effa Manley's uh, biography. It's called, it's, gonna, it's called Baseball's Leading Lady, and it was just released this month. And uh, Andrea talks a lot in the book. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but from what I've understood, and I'm expecting my copy soon, it's a lot about what happened with Major League Baseball as a result of integration, what happened with Negro Leagues as a result of integration, a side that Major League Baseball never, ever really talks about it hurt an entire baseball ecosystem that existed. So you do this in your Major League Baseball. What happens? You have decades where uh, there are no black scouts. There are no black coaches, managers, executives, uh, you know, uh, second rate or third rate ball players who would have, you know, retired and gone into those positions the way white players do now and always have. Uh, and, and that just continues through the generations, right? Because if you don't have a, a 50 or 60 year old black coach or black scout as a mentor in the 1960s or 70s, that harms opportunities of black players later. And that continues generation by generation of having less mentorship. And it leads to where we are now, where baseball is still an overwhelmingly white game in almost every way that matters. The legacy of what Major League Baseball did with the Negro Leagues continues to this day. So I'm interested in Minnie Minoso, and I'm interested in Felipe Alou, and I'm interested in the stats on on a very basic level because I'm interested in everything that has to do with baseball. But I really want to know what Major League Baseball is going to do uh, to 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 make that whole picture far better than it would have been if they hadn't had segregation to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I have heard a little bit of talk about, you know, shouldn't they get the pensions that major leaguers got um, and those kinds of, you know, possible reparations. But I, that goes to the other part of my question, which is, was this a one-off by baseball or are they actually going to take action to make up for, for what has gone on in the past in terms of, promoting, uh, you know, more African-Americans and Latinos to executive positions and managerial positions and bringing the black community into baseball more. Um, and so anyway, I will. So Tope, I will are just... you saying, will Major League Baseball show how black lives matter? Well, I mean, that's the other question, right, that, that I was going to get to, which was why now? And, 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 you know, is it only because of what happened this summer that suddenly uh, baseball got woke? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I mean, to, to go to a number of the points we've raised already, when I first heard the, the news, sure, this absolutely was, uh, if not a direct response to the protest of last summer in the wake of the, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, it certainly was shaped by it, no doubt, right? And, and, and to be cynical yet again, um, you know, it was a yet another inadequate response by, um, by Major League Baseball, insofar as it, it, it has tended to frame questions of racism and locate it just in the past, right? A past that was already overcome uh, once Jackie Robinson took the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. And so to, you know, to kind of anchor us into a discussion of the past, and, and no doubt we need to have a racial reckoning with, uh, with the past of this country and other countries as well. But the downside to that discussion is that it faces, uh, you know, the, the discussion of racism in baseball today, right? So that we get caught up in these discussions, which are productive to a point, but, you know, it's very consistent with the pattern of, of locating racism in, in professional baseball and major league baseball as a, as a problem of the past, not, a, not, a, not, a, not an issue in the present. I'm struck by this, this. There's a history angle here. One, one set of questions that arose after this decision was, should we consider Negro League statistics? Is this the right decision? Was it really a league the way the American League was, the National League was? But I would raise another. I might turn that question on its head a little bit and say, why do we considering statistics from the American, the National League in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s 
as legitimate. Yeah, I thought that. Beginning with Jackie Robinson, but didn't end until much later. The notion that the players on Major League rosters were the best players in America, let alone the world, was could not be taken seriously. So we have decided, in some cases before some of us were born, that this was the official baseball, organized baseball as they call the time, and that wasn't. And that was both because of racist reasons, so the Negro Leagues was just something on the outside, but also for economic reasons, right? The other, the Pacific Coast League was completely marginalized. They were always half the, you know, San Francisco Seals or, or the Los Angeles Stars in most years were at least good as at least half the major league teams. Not all. They paid better. And they paid better, especially if you're from the West Coast. What about baseball in Japan? Sadaharo clearly could have played in the major leagues and clearly could have helped a lot of teams in, in the 60s and 70s. So, so this question of what is baseball history? I mean, I, I'm reminded of this and I'll be brief. When, when I first became a baseball fan, the big story was Henry Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's record. You, you may have read about that. Henry Aaron was the last big league player who had played the Negro Leagues, right? Because his career lasted so long and he was such a great player. But there was a lot of talk then. Oh, he doesn't really deserve it. He had someone in the media, the seasons he played now are longer. So he had more, you know, more at-bats, more games than Babe Ruth did. Babe Ruth spent five years of his career as a pitcher. That was racism, right? It's a nonsensical argument that Henry Aaron didn't hit more home runs than Babe Ruth. And if you buy that argument, then you can kind of throw every baseball statistic out the window. I'm for this, but this is a technical solution to a political and economic problem. Why don't we find a way to get some of the revenue that was generated by a major league baseball that excluded black people into the hands of the descendants of the people who played in the Negro Leagues or who managed or coached in the Negro Leagues? That is completely off the table in, in any form. So this is good and it's fascinating, but it's, it's the beginning, hopefully the beginning of a conversation about baseball history, not the end of one. It would be better if they reinvested it and had a more rigorous version of RBI, the baseball in the inner cities program, to increase participation. And one of the things that really bothers me about the minor league contraction and realignment that we've seen throughout 2020 and sort of as as part and parcel of the pandemic, but really the pandemic proved to be kind of a, a Trojan horse that allowed them to further facilitate the plan that they had to do that is that with fewer slots, it's going to put more pressure on those players who don't have the economic wherewithal to go to baseball clinics and to be Trevor Bauer, to be fair about it, to, to have dad bankroll them into being a great major league player through through training and clinics and travel teams and so on. Those that can't do that are going to have much less opportunity to get into the game. And it is, pardon the expression, going to change the complexion of the game going forward. It's extraordinarily, extraordinarily short-sighted. I mean, you know, I mean, AOC in her um, Instagram uh, video last night, which I encourage people to see, uh, it was an extraordinary uh, execu- uh, demonstration of her leadership and brilliance and, and fearlessness, you know, basically summed up, our, you know, a, a lot of our issues in this country around people just pursuing short-term financial gain, period, and not thinking about long-term consequences. And the way this plays out in Major League Baseball is interesting because it is a sport, you know, that does relish in its history, unlike other sports, right? You know, the NBA, not so much. Football, a little bit, uh, for sure. And and so, you know, it has this history of telling the story of, of, of the game. And you can see this move to acknowledge these statistics along these lines. And also just the, the, the plethora of research that's been done on the Negro Leagues by people on this podcast, like Adrian Bungos and others, right? So... 
So we have that as part of its story. And yet there just doesn't seem to be a lot of attention to that at all, aside from these facile gestures. And, you know, and I think that's just that's just something that's, that's particular to this industry that's, that's different from others. Right. This is a sport that has relish in its history. And yet it's really doing nothing but sanitizing it. Oh, they know it. They just don't care. I mean, the only consideration in the whole minor league thing is, you know, money. And like you said, we're going to talk about this at length in its own episode. But, you know, this, this was a financial organizational decision. They they don't care about the talent level or the, the, the talent base coming into Major League Baseball on anywhere approaching the level that they care about the dollars. Isn't the, a monetary kind of compensation really totally off the table? I mean, I, I've I've seen it mentioned, but obviously baseball hasn't said anything to that effect. That's a key point, Tova. I just wanted to follow up on what Lincoln said, by the way, because I've been writing about this for over 20 years, but people hate it when you say that the records of Ruth and Gehrig and those cats are completely illegitimate because they didn't face the best competition that they could face. They faced only the best white competition in a league where... In any given year in an eight-team league, only six were trying and two, say the Browns, the White Sox, and the post-Black Sox years were more than tanking it. Whether you, you call stats of one kind or another legitimate or not, you always have to contextualize them in one way or the other. And that is a, a huge way. And that's even before you say things like, hey, Babe Ruth rarely faced relievers. You know, he faced pitchers on their 150th pitch of the game and never played a night game and so forth. Dunkin' is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Dunkin' with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Dunkin'. Sip into the fall season with the $3 medium pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusion apply. Valid on pumpkin spice signature latte only in all cold foam cold brew. Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Where new stories meet tales as old as time. Enchanté, mon ami! And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. Frank was talking about about history. To me, this is significant because what those people who stormed the Capitol, to just get back to that for a second, one of the reasons they stormed the Capitol is because of the debate we are having writ broad in America today about American history. During every election, they always say, you know, vote for so-and-so or so-and-so because this election is about the future. But this past election in 2020 was very much about the past. It was about how we wanted to think about and understand America's past so that we could orient ourselves going forward. And this discussion we're having now, there are baseball fans, and I'm sure baseball players and baseball people who want to believe that the St. Louis Browns uh, in the 1920s, the Chicago White Sox in the 1930s, were major league teams and were collections of some of the best players on the planet with ownership and players making you know good faith efforts to win the championship. And, and that is nonsensical. But that idea is very threatening to the idea of big league baseball, because if you, if you take 
what empirically is a difficult thing to disagree, with which to disagree. But then you say, well, then everything else falls from there. Then how do we know that Babe Ruth did this or Ty Cobb did that? So it is, it's, it's a similar, obviously the politics is kind of much more impactful, but it's a similar resistance to thinking about things with some, in a way that you might not have learned in third or fourth grade. Yeah, I mean, I would throw out to the, to the historians, especially looking at you figuratively speaking, Adrian and Frank. I mean, how is this also reflective kind of of um, how we have treated um, Black Americans and their historical role in the evolution of this country more broadly, whether it's, you know, inventions or, in, you know, the corporate world or in the legal world? Where, you know, or actually the best example is in music, right? Where <laughs> we know about all of those uh, white celebrities who literally stole the work of Black musicians, you know, this sort of erasing of the Blacks' contributions to some, some field. You know, as I think about it, it's, it's interesting because, again, and I'm invested in telling history every single day. It's my job. It's my passion. This is not telling the story even of the role of Negro leagues in black life, in the, in the survival of black communities um, uh, in the Jim Crow era, whether it was formal in the South or informal in the North or, you know, in this, in, in this country. So, you know, there's other ways to tell the story of the Negro leagues. And that has actually been done, but has not been done enough on the, on the, on the public level by Negro league baseball. I mean, as I think about the East West all-star game that was played at Comiskey park all those years, you know, we have some knowledge of that, of that past, but, but not enough. Right. And so, so what you have is, you know, by elevating the stats to, you know, uh, recognizing it, major league baseball recognizing these stats, it's a version of the of the black first narrative of black history. That like black folks did this too, or you know, Josh Gibson hit these many home runs, or whatever, uh, without really, you know, reckoning not only with the history of racism that shaped that past, but also just just actually looking at it from the perspective of black Americans, because the Negro leagues did play a significant role. Adrian's written about this in his book on uh, Alejandro Pompez in Harlem, for example play a huge role in the survival and the maintenance of, of, uh, of black communities, um, you know, during that era. And that's a story that still hasn't been told adequately, as far as I'm concerned. Who gets to tell the stories of black baseball is from this point forward, actually, I think is really a significant point. Look back at the movie 42 and you see a white savior narrative on film. It's Branch Rickey, it's Pee Wee Reese. And yes, Jackie is a central figure, but look at who literally holds Jackie up. Major League Baseball wanted every African-American ball player to be like Jackie Robinson. And most African-Americans said, no, the toll's too high. The legacy of integration was, in fact, the dismantling of the baseball in infrastructure in Black America. So when, when Stephen mentions about, you know, invest in RBI, how are you going to get the players to come out of Mookie Betts, David Price were coming out of colleges. How are we going to get them to coming out of high school into the major league if there's not a strong RBI program? If there's a shrunken minor league system, how are we going to do that? And this is the short-sightedness of major league baseball in restructuring the minor leagues and really putting this off to colleges and to Latin America to produce the next generation of black and Afro-Latino players. They want all the good press. They want all the good press from, uh, from, from the move. They don't want to do any of the work to make the move meaningful. Adrian, I know we're going to talk about this, but can you just explain what you mean about, you know, taking a, exploiting the uh, Latin American talent? Sure. 
looking at the Dominican Republic and the academy system and with the shrinkage of the number of minor league franchise working directly with Major League Baseball, Latin America becomes an even more important uh, place for the development of young 16, 20-year-old talent Dominicans and because it's a lot cheaper signing a Dominican at $10,000, dollars $25,000 and, and looking at his prospects. And what I'm convinced is Major League Baseball is going to keep offshoring that talent development until they're, quote, ready to come to the United States and play in the minor leagues. There is not a similar investment in African-American communities within baseball. RBI Baseball exists because, I forget his first name, Young is his last name, created RBI Baseball, an African-American man who had played a little bit in the minor leagues and the major leagues. He put it together and basically pushed Major League Baseball to get doing RBI. It's not Major League Baseball's invention. It was an African-American man who created it. And as we, you know, as, as Adrian's written, and we've talked about this before, you know, uh, and it, it bears mentioning again, uh, the, the absolute separation of the Latino experience as we, or the Latin <laughs> experience, as, as some say, in baseball history and, and the black uh, as two separate, you know, tracks in, in U.S. history, in baseball history is deeply flawed, right? Because uh, as, as many have, have said, many uh, Afro-Caribbean ballplayers play in the Negro Leagues. Uh, uh, they're the predominant force of the so-called Latino baseball player today or, or, or players of African descent. You know, some of them now coming from places like Curacao, right? And so the inability to even reckon with that history or recognize that history, the history of the Caribbean Leagues and Latin American Leagues and the Mexican Leagues in the history of baseball, as the international circuit and, and major league baseball being the dominant part of that circuit, you know, also facilitates his amnesia and the inability to deal with the ways in which race and labor exploitation actually happen today, right? With major league baseball players coming from the Caribbean. That gives you a sense of what is possible in terms of really reckoning with the past uh, of racism in the past, acknowledging the contributions of black ball players and black figures, you know, whether they come from the United States or the Caribbean and, and seeing how that plays out today, because there's definite legacies of that era that are not recognized in these, in these facile gestures uh, that, we've, that we've seen so far. Yeah. You have to think that in addition to white supremacy, um, there is also a, a little dose of American exceptionalism in all of this conversation as well. Have any of you guys actually been to the Negro League Museum? Yes, I have on a couple of occasions. Raymond Doswell, who's the uh, head of uh, the library, works with Bob Kendrick, uh, has brought me out when I uh, published Cuban Star, the story of uh, Alejandro Pompez. And it is a great place to begin to reckon with history. And it is an important space. And I give credit to uh, Bob and Raymond Doswell for beginning to better address the Latin American part of the story, the Latino part of the story. The place where the best Latino players started their careers in the United States during the era of segregation was in the Negro Leagues. The best players were in the Negro Leagues, not in the major leagues, or excuse me, not in MLB. And that is the story of Latinos in baseball. It starts in the Negro Leagues. Yeah. That's actually has nothing to do with anything, but your your little correction there about in MLB instead of the major leagues. That's uh, the, the, the only thing here that kind of like bugs me a little bit about the move on a, on a basic level is that we now have to like talk about it completely different because I've got 47 years of saying the major leagues versus the Negro leagues. And damn it, they just really got to fix that. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you know, you can say that this is now part of the statistics, but the statistics for baseball are what people say about them. 
there are Bud Selig, uh, the former commissioner, still doesn't really recognize Barry Bonds, who hit more home runs off pitchers on steroids than anyone in baseball history. In other words, more home runs versus pitchers who were taking steroids. But but I'm saying so so for a large well, so, so the history you know, the, the records are kind of what people want to believe. It's not you know there's no saying this is now official. It is a statement that even at that. People are going to process that as they as they want. It has no real world bearing until people give it that, and it's not obvious that there will be unanimity around that idea. If I can just interject about records and uh, just give a you are there for son to things on September sixteenth, nineteen seventy five, Rennie Stennett, the Panamanian second baseman of the Pirates, batting leadoff against the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. Went seven for seven with two RBIs, five runs scored, hit a couple of doubles and a triple. It is a great thing to go seven for seven in a ball game, And I would like to contrast that with Donald Trump, who has gone for impeachment twice and has now, as we speak, succeeded twice in being impeached. He is the only president in history to go two for two. The impact may be minimal, but it is good that actions at least have some consequences. <laughs> and now he's going to walk. <laughs> I have to give you two comments on that on that Rennie Stenn at seven for seven. In his last at his seventh hit, somebody pinch ran for him. A young prospect, a second base prospect in the pirate system. And they were so confident in Stennett that they then traded Willie Randolph that offseason to the Yankees. <laughs> After the seventy nine season, Rennie Stennett was a free agent and he signed the first really big free agent contract that the San Francisco ever gave to any player. In January of 2019, so this is almost 40 years later, shortly uh, after his 90th birthday, I interviewed Bob Lurie for my forthcoming book, The Giants and Their Cities. Bob Lurie had been the owner of the Giants at that time. And I asked Bob Lurie, who was the kind of guy, he'll just, like, he's not, doesn't say a, a lot. He's not exactly garrulous, but he'll tell you what's on his mind, what's on his mind. And truthfully, we're talking about free agency and the challenges for kind of a medium sized market team like the Giants. And I said, so, what was the worst free agent signing you ever made? And I was waiting to see if he got it right, because there is and a right answer. he said Rennie Stennett, <laughs> and that is the right answer. And he said, try not to let it bug you, but it bugs you, even 40 years later. <laughs> this is why, again, I mean, it, Lincoln, you you just gave a perfect example of the function of stats in baseball storytelling, right? It's about telling a story. I know sabermetric folks really use it as a way to you know, assess a, the value of a player, uh, and that's all that you know, many um, executives think about now. But for fans and for folks like us, if I may speak for this group, it's about the stories that they that they enable us to tell. Right. Um, and I think what's happened, you know, part of the reason that, that shaped my reaction to this is that after the steroid era, you know, my investment in stats, you know, just went down the tubes. I, I just don't really care about them as much anymore. And as much as we will, you know, the, the historians have done yeoman work in documenting and finding what actually happened in games that we would call Negro League baseball games. But at the end of the day, it's about telling the story of Josh Gibson. It's about telling the story of Sacha Pays or Effa Manley or Rennie Stennett, you know, uh, being a, a bust as a free agent uh, for, the, for the Giants in the early 80s. So in the end, that's what's, a, what, what's relevant of Negro history. One of the things, if, if it is beyond it telling us about a history of white supremacy and racism in baseball, it is, it is about how it contributes to the way in which we tell the story of the game mm -hmm. and why we find it meaningful. And also the way in which you tell the story about America. Yes. Yeah, no, I was, uh, I brought up the Negro uh, League Baseball Museum because, I mean, it, I think it got more press attention when this all happened than it has probably ever, which I thought that was a nice bonus. 
But Mr. Kendrick was also very clear to say that the stats are not the story and that the story is the players and the, and, and the teams and, and how, you know, what their lives were. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping in addition to all that we're talking about investment and RBI and all that kind of stuff, that there will also be more investment and they will have a better time fundraising for that museum, which I really hope to go to. I just want to defend Rennie Stennett for just one second because he oh, was God. hurt. He was hitting 336 in August 77 when he broke his leg on a play. And if the Giants signed him, he was bad for a solid two years after that when he could play. So the the misjudgment on the on the part of the Giants was done in the face of all evidence. So my question is, was it Chase Utley, a predecessor of Chase Utley, who got the Rennie Stennett play? <laughs> What I love about Stennett is I love that 70s Pirate team, if I may be a baseball fan. Yep. And, and the ways in which the Pirates actually, you know, were, you know, uh, Adrian mentioned Panama earlier when he talked about Mariano Rivera, but yep. the Pirates, you know, they were among those early franchises signed these black Korean ball players for Panama, right? Manny Sanguien, Rennie Stennett. Um, Omar Moreno. You know, you know, there's a number <laughs> of folks, you know, in that Pirate team from that era, yep. you know, Stennett's one of them. Stennett took Dave Cash's place at second base, right, if I remember right. Um they had loads of talent from from Panama, you know, uh, uh, and, and other uh, among other places in the, the Caribbean and Latin America, and of course the U.S. Right, so um, so in some ways, stand it significant in, in that way too. That's that's a franchise that's often overlooked. When we look at that integration era, you know, the Pirates and their and their ways of attracting and signing and and to some degree exploiting, uh, you know, black talent from <laughs> from the Caribbean. But as importantly, in signing all those players, they also broke the long standing sort of second line Jim Crow defense in baseball, which was that you were not supposed to have at first more than a couple of, of players of color on the field and then not a majority of players of color on the field. And then finally you weren't supposed to have all players of color on the field. And it was the pirates who finally said, no, let's just play the best players. In 1971, right? The first. Uh, all that included Doc Ellis on the mound. That's right. That's right. I actually think the Pirates in general don't get enough credit for their role in in moving baseball along in a lot of ways because of the Jackie Robinson story in part, because that has become the dominant narrative. I mean, as it should in a lot of ways, but how it has been sort of like the the um, pivot point that everyone circles around when talking about this issue. One of the interesting things when you think about the Giants and the Dodgers and integration story, the Dodgers brought African-Americans in, but the Giants internationalized integration when they brought Alex Bompez in to be their director of international scouting and began to bring players from the Dominican, from Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Bahamas, Panama, Nicaragua. And that's where we really see baseball integration taken to the next level. And yeah, the Giants were way ahead of the story in that sense, because they really looked at integration as more than just a local story. It's an international impact. So they made Jackie Robinson's impact much broader than the Dodgers did. And and to some extent, and they also were the first, they brought in Masanori Murakami in 1964. They were the first team to really internationalize the game in that sense. And I'm convinced that was easier to do sitting in the West Coast than it would have been in, in some other parts of the country. Uh, they also were, you know, remember in 51 in the World Series, Bobby Thompson had to play third base. So Sam Thompson moved to the outfield. And it was a big deal in 1951, just to put this in perspective, that the Giants, they didn't have an all-African-American starting lineup. They had an all-African-American outfield. And that was big yep. news at the time. The other two were Monty Irvin and a center fielder whose name I can't remember. May, something like that. 
Hey, hey, hey. Well, and, and, and you know, to be not to beat up on the Dodgers a little more, but I will. You know, as much as credit as, as they get, you know, and Ricky gets for the for the signing of, of Robinson, you know, they, they do. They're lagging behind uh, in some ways compared to the Pirates or the Giants and even some other teams uh, in terms of signing Latinos. I mean, they're, they have Manny Mota in the late 70s, and then they don't, you know, their first start. But Manny Mota started with the Giants. Exactly. Uh, and he's a pinch hitter. Yeah. He's not a frontline player at that point. And then, of course, Fernando coming in 1980, 81. Um, you know, so in a weird way, the Dodgers have used, you know, they exemplify the ways in which the Robinson story gets used by a baseball franchise. Uh, certainly, you know, they were more progressive than other teams. But as the integration era, you know, unfolds and as teams try to get competitive, there are a lot more teams. There are other teams that have a lot more players that have more impactful positions of different types of black and Latino players than the Dodgers in that era. So not for the first time where um, we are over time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's without a live audience. So anyway, I'm going to I'm going to uh, flip it to Steve for uh, a closing comment. Well, the first closing comment, of course, is that I hope that everyone enjoyed this auditory version of Say It Ain't Contagious and that our plan going forward is to alternate these full panel weeks with more intimate solo turns by members of the panel. But that will begin, I suppose, in episode three. Next week, episode two is a full cast performance. You will have the lot of us again, so you can get used to us. We can get used to each other, and all of us can get used to Masanori Murakami mentions, which took me by surprise at any rate. Finally, should you want to talk about the show, talk to us, or give us feedback, I hope you'll follow us on Twitter at SCIAPod. That's SCIA. P-O-D. However you choose to follow us, you can count on hearing from us weekly at this time to talk more about the intersection of baseball and politics. So thanks, everyone, for joining us, and we'll see you, so to speak, next week. Se siente bien saber que cuando le pones sirope a tu Big Breakfast with the Hotcakes de McDonald's, tú controlas dónde cae. Primero se acerca tu biscuit y rodea la salchicha, luego llega a tus hash browns y finalmente a tus huevos revueltos, dándoles ese sabor dulce del maple. Ordena por anticipado en el lab de McDonald's y que fluya el sirope. Para pa pa pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes ergira la descarga y registro. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line.